or not. Well, at least the dark-skinned ones. Join us in the conversation live at the Eastside Cafe, 4569 Huntington Drive in Los Angeles, 11 a.m. Support comes from Art Don't Sleep and Jazz is Dead, presenting Baseku Guyate and Ngoni Ba on Thursday, February 22nd at the Lodge Room in Highland Park. Traveling all the way from his home in Mali, Baseku is one of the true masters of the Ngoni, an ancient traditional lute found throughout West Africa. With his band Ngoni Ba, Baseku pushes the boundaries of his ancient musical heritage, bringing his music to audiences around the world. More information and tickets, visit jazzisdead.com or kpfk.org. You're listening to KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, and on the web at kpfk.org. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, updates from Gaza. LA supervisors roll back legal protections for the unhoused amidst storm. Filmmaker Jen Sharp on her groundbreaking documentary, Anecdotals. Notorious think tank Rand Corporation's role in public health. Unvaccinated workers fight back in New York courts. UN General Assembly lays out its plans in 2024. And the non-NATO news with Paulina Vasiliev. All this and more coming up. Miller. Hamas has responded to a U.S. and Israeli-backed ceasefire proposal from last week with a counterproposal, Reuters reported this morning. The draft of Hamas proposes a 135-day ceasefire that would culminate in a cessation of hostilities and a withdrawal of Israeli forces. The first phase would see Hamas militants release the remaining Israeli hostages from Gaza in exchange for 1,500 of the now over 10,000 Palestinian prisoners detained in Israel. The plan also involves the reconstruction of the devastated Gaza territory and an exchange of bodies killed in the four-month war. The truce would also allow for the delivery of additional food, medical supplies, and other aid to the 2.3 million Gazans, 85% of whom have been displaced by the ongoing Israeli carpet bombing amidst a deepening humanitarian crisis. Over half a million Palestinians are in immediate danger of starvation, half of them children, according to the UN. Israel has yet to formally respond to the Hamas counteroffer, but an unnamed official told Israeli media that the proposal was a non-starter, The Guardian reported today. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken arrived in Israel overnight, supposedly to prevent further escalation into a broader regional conflict. 
despite polls quoted by the Associated Press showing 50% of Americans opposing the war on Gaza, the Biden administration has continued to finance and politically support the genocide. The Israel military confirmed yesterday that they notified 31 Israeli families of hostages that their relatives were dead. The New York Times has reported that this number could be much higher. In early November, Hamas claimed that 60 hostages had died of a result of Israeli bombing, with West Jerusalem officials insisting that Hamas bears the underlying responsibility. The Israeli Hannibal Directive postulates that, quote, a dead soldier is better than a living captive, end quote, implying that the lives of captives might be sacrificed to prevent hostage negotiations. Close to 28,000 Palestinians have been confirmed killed and about 70,000 wounded in Israeli attacks on Gaza since October 7th. The death toll in Israel from the October 7th Hamas attacks stands at 1,139. Aid missions departing from the southern border into Gaza increasingly have their access denied, according to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OSHA. The UN agency said that out of 61 planned aid missions to the north, only 10 were allowed by the Israeli authorities in direct violation of the International Court of Justice ruling. While few of the missions to distribute food reached Gaza, missions to support critical hospitals and facilities providing water, hygiene, and sanitation services are being denied, the agency said. Yesterday, the L.A. Board of Supervisors began a very aggressive agenda, one not so friendly to the many unhoused people of Los Angeles. During Tuesday's board meeting, the supervisors voted to instruct county council to file or join in an amicus brief to reverse the grants pass decision, which is similar to trying to overturn the landmark Martin v. Boise case. These cases held that cities cannot enforce anti-camping ordinances if they do not have enough homeless shelter beds available for their homeless population. Venice Justice Committee strongly opposes this motion. As a person who works with unhoused people and vehicle housed people and as a person with lived experience, I want you to know that this is wrong. No matter how you change it, you're still siding with criminalization. And the point is, people want to use criminalization as a tool. It doesn't matter what you say or how you try to narrow it. It's about siding with criminalization. The motion was purportedly in response to the rainstorm that began on Sunday, forecasted to taper off today. Introduced by Supervisor Holly Mitchell, it was initially aimed at aligning with the broader intent to reverse the Grants Pass ruling in order to get people indoors by any means necessary. However, after deliberations, the scope was narrowed. The revised directive maintains a ban on criminal penalties for public camping, but permits the removal of personal belongings from public spaces. Critics, including advocacy groups like the End Homelessness Now campaign, argue that criminalizing homelessness is not only morally reprehensible, but also counterproductive. 
They highlight that such policies exacerbate the challenges faced by unhoused individuals, making it more difficult for them to secure stable housing and prolonging their periods of homelessness. They highlighted the need to fast-track supportive, affordable housing, install public bathrooms throughout the county, raise general relief from the $221 it has been for 40 years, create safe parking areas for vehicle dwellers, and give medical help for those who need it. Life on the streets of Los Angeles is dangerous at the best of times. Add on torrential rains, frigid nights, and whipping winds that have beleaguered L.A. County for the last week, and it can prove deadly. Troy Vaughn, CEO and president of Los Angeles Mission, which operates a shelter in Skid Row, said, It's not just rain, it's actually a cold rain, and people can die out there. It's that cold, especially the later it gets at night. The severity of the weather has prompted emergency responses from both the city and county homeless services, including the activation of the Augmented Winter Shelter Program by the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. This program offers motel vouchers to temporarily house individuals during storms and has also led to the opening of emergency shelters with additional beds to accommodate those in need. LASA also opened 300 emergency beds at four sites operated by City of Los Angeles Department of Parks and Recreation. On Sunday, downtown Los Angeles smashed its record for most rainfall ever recorded with a total of 4 inches, dealing a heavy blow to the roughly 4,400 homeless in downtown Skid Row. Additionally, the Los Angeles mission has almost doubled its capacity by adding 325 cots on top of its 400 permanent beds. On Sunday night, 237 emergency cots were occupied. The nonprofit organization People Assisting the Homeless, or PATH, is replicating similar efforts throughout Los Angeles. Despite these efforts, challenges remain, notably the reluctance among some unhoused individuals to seek shelter, often due to concerns over personal belongings, pets, or previous negative experiences with shelters. During the deliberations, dozens of speakers strongly urged the Board of Supervisors to reject the item, citing the risk of setting a dangerous precedent that would be exploited by municipalities eager to remove homeless people from their streets, even if in violation of the current case law. However, L.A. County Board of Supervisors voted to pass the item, with amendments urging for a Supreme Court ruling on the landmark case law and allowing for the removal of RVs and of unhoused people's tents and property. Board Chair Lindsay Horvath was the sole no vote. Rebel Alliance News. Tomorrow, February 8th at 3.40 p.m., the Pan-African Film Festival is hosting a special screening of the documentary film, Anecdotals. This movie provides a glimpse into the lives of people whose lives have been changed drastically by taking the COVID vaccine. Anecdotals is a personal journey that focuses on questions, not answers, and people, not politics. But despite this diplomatic approach, the film has been mired in controversy even being labeled with a content warning by film festival producers. 
I spoke with director Jennifer Sharp, whose compelling story of vaccine injury is integral to the film, exploring the profound transformation she underwent while crafting this documentary, and her fervent hope for a future where the voices of those forsaken by the establishment finally are heard. I'm Jennifer Sharp, and I am a filmmaker for 20 years or my whole life. Since I was six, I wanted to do this, so... I love movies, love making movies, indie films. And um, I was vaccine injured after my first Pfizer shot in March of 2021. Spent the whole year dealing with mandates and being mandated out of society. Also having nobody really want to hear about my injury and then being censored. And, and it took me about nine months from my injury to finally decide to make the movie Anecdotals because I really didn't want to do it. Numerous reasons. I just finished an independent film. It's a comedy and fiction, but it wore me out. And I was like, I can't start another movie because I pretty much have to deal with finding the funding or funding them myself, which basically means I do it for free on my own time because I love it, which is exactly what I did with anecdotals. So I was like, if I do this, I can't spend money on it. Like, how can I make this interesting? But the cool thing that happened was I ran into the right people at the right times. People kept putting in my ear, you should make a movie about this. And I'm like, no, no. And then finally, I started putting it back at people like, how will you help me if I make this movie without really having to ask. I had two pretty substantial executive producers come in and like say, you know, what do you need to do an interview at the rally or what do you need for this? And so I got those expenses covered. So it fell together. I'm basically like, I'm following this movie. It's got a life of its own. Also, I lost my third job because I wasn't vaccinated fully. And that was just ridiculous too. And it was just looking at my friends and family who are like living their life and don't care. They don't care that I can't go to this party. I can't go to my friend's funeral and that I'm not getting work. And like the most they'll do is listen sympathetically and then they just go on. So I was like, people need to know what's happening. And too many people were saying, I've never heard of anybody with a vaccine injury. I've never heard of anybody. And I've been in a support group since the week I got injured full of thousands and thousands of people. So tell us a little more about the support group. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel lucky because I was just talking about my injury. I couldn't feel my face, the left side of my face for like three weeks. And I'm walking into my apartment and I see a neighbor and she's like, How are we I'm like, it's weird. I can't feel my face. I got vaccinated. And surprisingly, she was like, oh, my God, I just heard somebody who had the same story. So she put me in touch with Denise Hertz, who actually had started this Facebook page early on. All these people were doctors because they got the early shot. And so I got invited to her group and there were already 500 people on this page. And suddenly I'm seeing everybody have the same thing as me. And people are like, I only had one shot or this happened after my second. Then from that Facebook group, you start realizing there's a bunch of other ones. However, we get taken down if we use the word Pfizer, Moderna, vaccine. So we have these codes, all of them. You have to say V, you have to say P, M. I mean, I could read you a post. It's heartbreaking. Every day, and even still, I'm still part of the group. I still have my reaction very mild, but it's still there. And I see people every day who got boosters coming on and being like, my life is ruined. I can't move. I've lost my job. And these are people who this year are just finding out about this group. I'm like, we've been to these groups for two years and you had no clue. And you're now learning after your sixth booster, after your fifth booster. And it's really sad. It's really sad to watch the new people come into the group and they're devastated. And they're just like, that was the day that my life was ruined. And But even back then, I'm listening to my family. They don't believe it's that serious, right? 
So when I'm telling them my thing and they're like, well, it's rare. Sorry, it's rare. And they go and get their vaccine anyway. Then, you know, we'll be sitting at the dinner table and they're all talking and I'll check my Facebook and there's somebody saying, well, somebody please explain to me how you got through this and when does it stop? Because if I have three more days of this, I swear I cannot do it. The most heart wrenching things. And I'm reading this at the dinner table. Why family is like oblivious. And I'm reading new things every day by people who are devastated and then finding out people are committing suicide. We've had many people from our support group commit suicide. We have many people leave suicidal posts and everybody understands. And it's also informative because a lot, you know, people are comparing what medicines they've done, what treatments they've done. The problem is, is that it's autoimmune. It's not like this is the reaction and this is how you treat it. It's like everybody's different. So that's hard. But yeah, the support groups, they keep me humble these days, even now, years into it. And people are like, I'm sick of it. This is burning me out. You're still talking about that. Well, people are still having their reactions. I totally get that. It does feel like a lot of people have just moved on. What was the process like in meeting other people that were injured and like platforming their stories? It was wonderful. So when you make movies, you're thankful to everybody who helps. Like, oh, can I show that your coffee shop? We have $50. Thank you. Thank you. So when I started this, I was reaching out to strangers who I'd seen on the support group, who I've seen their comments. And, you know, I'm doing a movie. Would you help? Would you talk? And a lot of people were like, no. There's this guy who lost his job in New York City and he was really articulate. And I was like, can I interview you for the movie? He was just like, no, for the first time in a year, I'm finally feeling like maybe I could apply for a job again. And I can't mess with being public about my vaccine injury and this vaccine stuff because I lost my job already. So the people who wouldn't do it, I was like, thank you, thank you. However, really quickly, I found out it was the opposite. Like, we'd do an interview and they wouldn't thank me. And like, that's where when you're making movies, that was when I started to realize what I was doing was really important because the people I interviewed who would come, they were just like, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for telling my story. Even if the process of them talking about it was therapeutic and somebody listening and it was therapy for me. So making the movie was, it was great. It made me feel better. It gave me a voice when in my own community and I don't have one and I start talking to my family or my best friends and they'll listen. And then I'll say, okay, I'm almost done. And then I finish it and then we move on. So part of the reason I made this movie was that was so I could tell people what they weren't willing to listen to. So it became therapy to me. For the first time in a year, I wasn't angry. I was putting all my energy into creating this. So it was really wonderful to make it. And then got it ready. I screened it with an audience for the first time. I got a standing ovation. People loved it. I was just like blown away. And then I came home and had a full-on panic attack, I like freaked out because I realized what I had done. And it's huge. And my face is all over that movie as well. I felt like the only way to make it interesting was to make it my personal story. Otherwise, I'm just interviewing vaccine injured, which only goes so far. But if I'm telling the audience, this is my story. So I did it and I was all excited. I had so much fun. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh my God. I was like, the pharmaceutical companies are going to kill me. I'm already on blacklist. I just realized I had shifted my panic attack of this. Oh, like, yeah. It feels like you don't have a choice. Yeah. That was also really interesting too. That's part of the movie with anecdotals is I talk about my personal journey. And part of my personal journey was being very liberal. So to be with the people on the left and then like I talk in the movie about how I ended up at the Stop the Mandates rally in L.A. and all these Make America Great hats and American flags and like just all these people that were taught. And I know now like the media has taught us to hate each other. And so for the first time, I'm around all these Trump supporters and stuff. But I did have the vision of Trump supporters that was fed to me by the media. And suddenly they're the same ones they're the nice ones. They're the compassionate ones. And I'm just like, wow. And I felt so good at that rally. I felt so good. I didn't have to say anything. Like, I don't have to prove 
okay, well, Fauci said this and I'll show you the proof. And here's the article. And here's this study says this. And they actually never studied it on pregnant women. And like all the facts that I know that I have to sit and lay out to people that people still won't take me seriously. I don't have to say anything of like everybody here understands it felt so good. It was a really big thing. And I have a completely different vision of people who might vote for Trump. And I understand why people would. I understand things are nuanced and complicated. Like you just see what you're fed. And there's very few people that go outside of their echo chambers. What do you hope viewers seeing this movie for the first time get out of it? People send me emails that have never told anybody they had a vaccine injury. There's many people who don't talk about it, but I get a lot of thank yous from vaccine injury because they're like, oh my gosh, I saw myself for the first time. So for the vaccine injured people, I hope that they get the bravery also to start talking about it more because you have to. Like, I didn't want to talk about it, but you have to. You have to remind them this is a thing. People who are still pretty pro-vags, maybe someone who's still getting their booster. My goal is not to make you not get your booster. My goal is just to have you ask questions and understand that there are things you haven't been told. So I hope that whoever watches this just opens their mind to be okay to questions. And if you still choose to get boosters, that's your choice. In general, that's not my goal. Like, it's not like, yes, one more person's not getting vaccinated. My goal is to open communication, to open compassion, to listen to each other more. So if you realize you might be wrong about some things, you might be ignorant about some things, when you hear somebody say something that sounds crazy, you might stop yourself from reacting. That's crazy. And actually tell yourself, hey, let me listen to the nuance that's going on. Anecdotals is playing tomorrow, February 8th at 3.40 p.m. And again on Monday, February 12th at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills Crenshaw at 4020 Marlton Avenue, Los Angeles, as part of the Pan-African Film Festival. For more information, visit Anecdotals Movie on Instagram or watch the movie for free at anecdotalsmovie.com. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. And you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. As you know, KPFK Pacifica Radio is a pure community effort. It's something we all do together to benefit every community member for over 65 years. So, because we work all day for free to bring you uncensored news that you're not going to find anywhere else, please do your part, go online to kpfk.org, and donate to our news program, Rebel Alliance News. We have to earn our keep here, too. So let us know you're listening and that you care. Please donate now. Everything helps. Go online to kpfk.org and become a member of our Sustainer Circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 a month, or gladly more, and join our KPFK family. Go to the phone and call 818-985-5735 and donate right now. Thank you. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Last month, beneath the hallowed halls of the University of California, Los Angeles, a gathering unlike any other took shape. The UCLA Center for HIV Prevention and Treatment, known as CHIPS, threw open its doors to a convergence of minds at the NextGen Conference, a veritable melting pot of the latest and greatest in HIV-AIDS research. 
This wasn't just any academic rendezvous, it was a global gathering where the creme de la creme of researchers unfurled their avant-garde studies, spanning the gamut from tech-savvy adherence tools for HIV meds to the resilience of Indian sex workers amid pandemic-induced isolation and rebuilding trust in the medical establishment post-COVID. Yet, amidst the academic revelry, a name tinged with controversy repeatedly pierced the atmosphere, RAND. With its tendrils deeply embedded in the fabric of the conference and the employer of many of the presenters, the RAND Corporation became a focal point of whispers and debate. When the question of RAND's omnipresence in the realm of public health surfaced in a Q&A, it was met with a polite deflection from a RAND representative. But the genie was out of the bottle, igniting a firestorm of curiosity of RAND's entanglement with public health. Officially, RAND wears its partnership with research powerhouses like UCLA CHIPS like a badge of honor. RAND stands as a colossus in the realm of research, with its tendrils stretching into global security, health, education, and beyond. The RAND Graduate School, the oldest and largest public policy PhD program in the United States, echo with the footsteps of the world's future policy leaders. Yet, the tapestry of RAND's history is woven with threads of controversy and debate. Born from the ashes of World War II as Project RAND, from the phrase research and development, the United States Army Air Forces established Project RAND with the objective of investigating long-range planning of future weapons. Project RAND later evolved into the RAND Corporation and expanded its research into civilian fields. As the 1960s crowned RAND the quintessential think tank, it also cast it as the blueprint for social engineering, a role that has not been without its detractors. Historically, RAND's recommendations have often skirted the edges of moral and ethical battlegrounds. RAND Corp. notoriously contributed to the doctrine of nuclear deterrence by mutually assured destruction, developed under the guidance of then-Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, and RAND Chief Strategist Herman Kahn also posited the idea of a winnable nuclear exchange in his 1960 book On Thermonuclear War. This led to Kahn's being one of the models for the titular character of the film Dr. Strangelove, in which RAND is spoofed as the Bland Corporation. Our doomsday scheme cost us just a small fraction of what we've been spending on defense in a single year. But the deciding factor was when we learned that your country was working along similar lines and we were afraid of a doomsday gap. Dr. Strangelove, do we have anything like that in the works? I commissioned last year a study of this project by the Bland Corporation. Technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. From the chilling calculus of nuclear proliferation to the clandestine recommendations for space-bound espionage, Rand Corp has been a polarizing figure in the annals of policy influence. Fast forward to the present, when just last month, Rand issued an ominous brief advising the U.S. government on maximizing its strategic footing in the burgeoning age of global biowarfare. And in December 2023, the Rand Corporation was designated as an undesirable entity in Russia, alongside CIA front groups and Western regime change cutouts such as the National Endowment for Democracy, the Atlantic Council, and Open Society Foundation. 
At the UCLA Next Gen Conference, I spoke with a founding member of UCLA CHIPS to peel back the layers of Rand's strange intimacy with the public health system and to ponder the delicate balance between partnerships and power. I'm Tom Bellin. I'm a professor in the UCLA Department of Biostatistics, where broadly we work on study design and data analysis for health science research. I've been involved with the CHIPS Center, Center for HIV Identification, Prevention and Treatment Services, since its inception in the mid-1990s. Well, thank you for your work, sir. It's really nice to meet you. It's really an honor for our listeners that probably don't have any understanding of the role of the RAND Corporation in public health. If you could give a brief overview. So I have never had a formal affiliation with the RAND Corporation. I've worked with researchers from the RAND Corporation. I professionally knew RAND as one of the leading groups in the field of statistics and biostatistics, which would be basically be statistics for the health sciences. RAND has had a statistics group since at least the 1980s, maybe going back to the 1970s, and was known in particular in health science research for a famous health insurance experiment where they bought out insurance plans from people and then randomly assigned people to different types of insurance plans to try to understand how health insurance coverage would relate to people's utilization of services. And since that time, they've been an engine of research in a lot of different areas. One of the most impactful areas is in the area of quality of life research, where there was a, a study called the Medical Outcome study. The question was, if you thought of coronary heart disease, hypertension, and depression, different medical concerns, which was most impactful in quality of life? And what they found was that coronary heart disease and hypertension had higher mortality than depression, but depression actually had was much more impactful on people's quality of life. And it was one of the early studies that had an influence bringing attention to mental health concerns as very important important for people's overall quality of life. It sounds like the RAND Corp has played a really pivotal role in doing really important research. What other types of areas they tend to be involved in so there really been a, a wide range of that's just one area. And the issue that came up that generated a question here was work on medical mistrust in the area of trying to provide HIV care and how that interfaces with underrepresented minority communities. The exchange we're having grew out of question about RAND Corporation's engagement in military contracts work that was the forerunner of what became the Pentagon Papers. I mean, there's been a long history of issues to have discussions about if there are entities that we want to transform, how best to do that. And I commented just as a matter of full disclosure that there have been RAND researchers involved with our CHIPS Center since its inception. And so that was part of what motivated my perspective, which is more favoring <laughs> trying to transform organizations from within, co-opting the resources they have for the causes that we want to advance and so forth. What is your assessment of researchers, either within this institution or just in the field in general, about working with the RAD Corporation? 
It's an interesting question because I've now been at UCLA for more than 30 years. I've worked with RAND researchers essentially entirely on health-related projects, and I've largely encountered discussions about RAND more from a vantage point of what kind of professional environment is it to work. And generally, the feeling is that it's a rich environment with challenges that I think are related to challenges that academic institutions have, where a lot of times for researchers, there's an imperative to get funding from outside sources, largely the federal government, to keep your research going. And there can be challenges related to that. And I really have not heard a lot of expression of concern about RAND or its activities. I think that one of the broader principles in our society is that there's increased attention to importance of transparency, of reproducibility of research, of openness in organizations. And I think that military-relevant research does raise questions about how to manage those kinds of concerns. I don't have all the answers that I do think as a society we need to have those kinds of debates. And I think that it's important in a democracy to have systems which allow citizens to maintain control over the process of self-governance. I'm a kind of a history buff myself, and I, I don't know all of the history of RAND's involvement in nuclear proliferation, about uh, CIA uh, programs that were secret, and I don't know the extent to which those interfaced with RAND activities. I do recall from reading about the history of the Pentagon Papers and that Daniel Ellsberg had been a contractor with Rand and that that was how he got access to papers that then got leaked to the New York Times and Washington Post and had a major impact on national policy in important ways in the 1970s and beyond. So I appreciated the concern, but didn't want us to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, one last thought is just um, maybe one of the first projects that I worked on with Rand. My own PhD work had to do with the U.S. census. This was in the early 1990s before there was any available treatment for HIV. And there was concern about to what extent was HIV prevalent in the population of street prostitutes in Los Angeles. And so there was a very innovative research project that the Rand researchers had developed. They got consultations from former prostitutes and from police sources. And they had field workers go out, walk the streets. And when they saw somebody who they thought might be eligible for the study, they would invite them to participate. There was a $25 incentive to participate. And they would have about a half hour, 45 minute interview would take a blood sample to ascertain their HIV status. So that helped strengthen the scientific foundation for finding out what the risk was to people at time. And so those are a lot of the associated I have with research-related innovation that I thought maybe your listeners would be interested to know more about. In this nexus of innovation and influence, the enmeshment of Rand Corp and public health institutions continues to grow, laden with promises of progress and ever shrouded in mystery. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In the bustling heart of Manhattan, a recent court ruling has thrown a stark spotlight on New York City's stringent COVID-era policies aimed at the unvaccinated. Picture this. Two New Yorkers who had obtained fake vaccine passports for their job and school found themselves in the legal crosshairs of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. 
Bragg, whose tenure has seen a fair share of controversies over his prosecutorial decisions, sought to slap these individuals with felony charges. But the controversial district attorney won't enjoy any bragging rights after New York State Supreme Court Justice Brendan T. Lantry dismissed the charges in a ruling on January 30th, suggesting that these two New Yorkers were selectively cherry-picked for harsh punishment. Justice Lantry pointed out that possessing a forged vaccine card, while illegal, pales in comparison to the more severe crimes that routinely pass through the Supreme Court of New York such as homicide and sexual assault. In a city grappling with serious criminal activity, the decision to prioritize the prosecution of vaccine card forgers raises questions about the appropriate allocation of judicial resources. But this case is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to New York City's hardline stance against those who chose to remain unvaccinated during the pandemic. The city, under the guise of public health, enacted some of the most severe penalties and restrictions in the nation for the unvaccinated. This included the punitive decision to fire or furlough city employees, from teachers to firefighters, who declined the experimental injections marketed as COVID vaccines. Amid this backdrop, figures like Michael Caine, representing the group Teachers for Choice, have stepped into the legal arena, challenging the state of New York for its draconian measures. They argue that educators who exercise their constitutional right to decline the shots were met with severe repercussions, including the loss of employment, lost pensions, and enduring emotional distress. My name is Michael Caine. I am a grassroots organizer in the medical freedom movement. Today, we are pushing back as fired workers here in New York, here in New York City. I have John Gilmore talking about new legislation that is calling for Albany, the state, to make a change in law in order to bring back fired workers. John Gilmore, you tell me where we're going, man. Like, what's happening? You know, a couple of years ago, particularly in New York City, people were going absolutely bonkers about COVID. I mean, it was really crazy in New York. All the employees got fired. The mayor came in and said nobody could go to work in the city unless they got the shot. They had that in place for a little while, right? They had passports. So if you're not in New York City, you don't have there's not too many places in, in America where things got as crazy as they did. Well, you know, one thing COVID did is it opened up a lot of eyes, right? It got people seeing things that they've never seen before and questioning things that they've never seen before. And and now it seems like uh, legislation may be a good idea at this point because a lot of the legislators are probably looking at things a little bit differently. And this is a tool to push them where they need to go. Yes. You know, so many people want to say, what COVID? What do you, I ain't got no COVID. I don't see no COVID. What are you talking about? But the truth is, it's so important that we don't let that leave the right. lands. When so many people are uncomfortable talking about it, we need to continue to push that because so much rides on that. Why don't we take it out with you just talking about that a little bit? You know, we're still got bearing the cost of COVID from all kinds of different perspectives, right? I mean, in New York City, kids were out of school for almost two years. That's completely derailed the academic careers of, of so many children. So many people did not receive the right medical care, right? And as a result of that, they ended up dying. And, and there's so many injuries from the vaccines that were mandated. So many people lost their jobs or their businesses because of the shutdown, right? People lost their houses. 
The huge amount of money the federal government spent on it was one of the major reasons why we had such inflation. The costs of COVID have been and continue to be enormous, right? And the problem is just about everybody who was in power for the last couple of years basically didn't do anything except go along with the right, right? And a lot of them don't want to talk about it. They want to pretend it never happened. It's over, move on. But the probs are still with us. We still have thousands of former career employees of, of the city of New York out of work. Uh, there's so many, so many problems that came from this that they don't want to deal with. And the only way they're going to deal with it is if people make them deal with it. There's a lot of injury out there that needs to be addressed that's not being addressed. As New York City grapples with the damages of the government's strict stance, this decision has the potential to create a domino effect and encourage other judges who have been reluctant to critically assess similar cases challenging the medically discriminatory measures taken by the government. It's a rare moment of reflection for the city that never sleeps and a small glimmer of hope for its citizens that are eager for a return to sanity in a post-pandemic world. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The head of the United Nations spoke to the General Assembly in New York Wednesday and laid out his plans for the organization in 2024. Don DeBar has the story. With wars that rage in parts of Africa, Asia, and Europe threatening to go global, and nations around the world staring at increasingly gloomier economic forecasts, the UN General Assembly heard Wednesday a briefing by the UN Secretary General on his plans and priorities for this year. And we bring you excerpts from that presentation. Excellencies, for millions of people caught up in conflict around the world, life is a deadly, daily, hungry hell. Record numbers are fleeing their homes in search of safety, and they are crying out for peace, and we must hear them and act. In the immediate term, we must continue to push for peace across the globe. The situation in Gaza is a festering wound on our collective conscience that threatens the entire region. Nothing justifies the horrific terror attacks launched by Hamas against Israel on 7 October, nor is there any justification for the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Yet. Israeli military operations have resulted in destruction and death in Gaza at a scale and speed without parallel since I became Secretary General. And I'm especially alarmed by reports that the Israeli military intends to focus next on Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been squeezed in a desperate search for safety. Such an action would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. It's time for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. And this must rapidly lead to irreversible actions towards a two-state solution based on United Nations resolutions, international law, and previous agreements. In Ukraine, I repeat my call for a just and sustainable peace in line with UN Charter and international law for Ukraine, for Russia, and for the world. 
In a swath of countries across the Sahel, terrorism is spiking and civilians are paying a terrible price. We will not relent in supporting the people of the Sahel in these troubling times. Collective action is essential in the Horn of Africa to consolidate the hard-won gains against Al-Shabaab and to preserve the fundamental principle of territorial integrity, avoiding new crises. The fighting must stop in Sudan before it destroys even more lives and spreads. And in Libya, while a ceasefire holds, the Libyan people deserve sustained peace and stability, starting with a commitment to free and fair elections. In Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, I call on all armed groups to lay down their weapons, and I urge regional leaders to prioritize dialogue over conflict. In Yemen, I appeal to all parties to focus on the path to peace and also to de-escalate tensions in the Red Sea based on the principle of freedom of navigation. In Myanmar, we need sustained international and regional attention to help urgently forge a path towards a democratic transition and return to civilian rule. And in Haiti, lawlessness is surging and millions face acute food insecurity. The multinational security support mission must be deployed without delay and I hope all obstacles will be removed. But I also urge Member States to provide the necessary financial support. And in the Western Balkans, some leaders continue to stoke tensions and netto-nationalistic rhetoric. I urge action for reconciliation, stability and economic prosperity across the region. Excellencies, if countries fulfill their obligations under the Charter, Every person's right to a life of peace and dignity would be guaranteed. But governments are ignoring and undermining the very tenets of multilateralism with zero accountability. The United Nations Security Council, the primary platform for questions of global peace, is deadlocked by geopolitical fissures. This is not the first time the Council has been divided, but it is the worst. Today's dysfunction is deeper and more dangerous. During the Cold War, well-established mechanisms helped manage superpower relations. In today's multipolar world, such mechanisms are missing. And so our world is entering in an age of chaos. And we are seeing the result, a dangerous, unpredictable free-for-all with total impunity, excellencies. Beyond tensions in the world and within communities, we need peace with justice. Inequalities and injustice are fuel for a world at war with itself. And conflicts are stocking further inequalities and injustice. Take the tale of two canals. Trade via the Suez Canal is down by 42% since the start of Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea more than three months ago. And trade via the Panama Canal is down 36% in the past months because of low water levels, a byproduct of the climate crisis. Whether the cause is conflict or climate, the result is the same, disruption to global supply chains and increased costs for everybody. And developing economies are particularly vulnerable to these disruptions. 
sustainable, inclusive development hinges on peace. And delivering the sustainable development goals is our most effective way of building peace and prosperity. Yet we face a development emergency. The seismic shock of the COVID-19 pandemic was followed by a sharp acceleration in global tensions and global prices when Russia invaded Ukraine. Developing economies were sent reeling. Many still are. Today's global economic outlook largely ignores the elephant in the room. Developing countries are experiencing their worst half decade since the early 1990s. Many face unpayable debt service costs, which are now at record levels. The world's poorest countries will owe more in debt service this year than their public spending on health, education and infrastructure combined. And meanwhile, governments are being forced to cut back on investments and in social service excellencies. To keep the promise of the SDGs, we need progress in two crucial areas. First, finance. We are pushing for an SDG stimulus of 500 billion US dollars annually in affordable long-term finance for developing countries. The SDG stimulus calls for urgent action on debt, including breathing space for countries facing impossible repayment schedules. I've invited a small number of heads of state to work with me to make the stimulus a reality. With your support, we can significantly and immediately increase the capital and capacity of multilateral development banks and help get developing economies back on track. Positive steps have been taken by the leadership of the banks, but there is still a long way to go. And second, we must keep working to usher in a new Bretton Woods moment with an international financial architecture that responds to the needs of all countries. And today's architecture is outdated, dysfunctional and unfair. It favours the rich countries that designed it nearly 80 years ago. It fails to offer countries the affordable finance required to meet our shared goals. And it does not fulfill the basic foundational function of providing a financial safety net for all developing countries. The Summit of the Future will consider the need for deep reforms to make financial institutions and frameworks truly universal and inclusive. From New York, 4KPFK, I'm Don DeBoer. 4KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. Here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. In Argentina, the ruling party backtracked the so-called Omnibus Law, a key project for the administration of ultra-right-wing Javier Milei, and sent it back to committees and adjourned the Congress session, as it was failing to reach consensus on its key articles. This means that the mega-bill presented by Millet loses last week's general approval and must go back to its initial debate. The decision was taken because Liberty Advances, Millet's party, did not have the necessary votes to approve key articles of the law, such as the privatization of public companies, reforms to the law on debt sustainability, and increased penalties to limit social protest. The legislative initiative, which became known as the Omnibus Bill due to its extension, had already been trimmed to almost half 
from initially over 660 articles and was presented as one of the pillars of the administration together with the DNU, the Urgency and Necessity Decree. Protesters, unions and social organizations celebrated the announcement in front of the Argentinian Congress. Yemen's armed forces have conducted a new naval operation targeting two American and British vessels in the Red Sea. Press TV's Abdul Latif Al-Washali has this report. In response to recent U.S. and U.K. airstrikes against Yemen, the country's armed forces have carried out a naval operation targeting American and British vessels. The naval forces of the Yemeni army carried out two military operations in the Red Sea, the first targeting an American ship, Star Nasia, and the other targeting a British ship, Morning Tide. Both ships were targeted with appropriate naval missiles and the hits were accurate and direct. Sari added the Yemeni armed forces will carry out more qualitative military operations against all hostile American and British targets and the Red and Arab Seas. He said Sana reserves the right to respond to the U.S.-U.K. aggression against Yemen. Military experts said this operation proves that the Yemeni army is capable of handling more than one target simultaneously. They added that the targeted vessels were carrying military equipment to Israel. This is the first military operation in which we target two ships at the same time, an American and a British one. And this is to confirm our ability to deal with more than one target simultaneously. And any attempt by the enemy to camouflage its ships at sea will fail. We can identify identify its ship. Both ships or one of them were carrying military equipment heading to the ports of occupied Palestine to support the Israeli enemy. Recently, the U.S. and U.K. have intensified their strikes against Yemen, specifically targeting residential areas in Hodeida City in a failed attempt to undermine the Yemeni army's capabilities and halt Yemen's naval operations. The Yemeni army has repeatedly affirmed that it will only cease its operations when Israel halts its genocidal war in Gaza. Despite the continued attacks on Yemen by the U.S. and U.K., Yemen's army is expanding its naval operations in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, indicating that Western aggression has failed to affect the Yemeni army's capabilities. It has also vowed to confront Western escalation with broader operations targeting their interests in the region. In Rafah city, in the south of the Gaza Strip, Israeli drones have been dropping leaflets spreading false information. More details with Telesur correspondent Noor Harazin. An intense night of Israeli bombings here in uh, Rafah. A series of Israeli strikes targeted several places, areas, streets in uh, Rafah city, which is now housing around half of Gaza's population, half of the 2.3 million people who are residents of uh, Gaza. And this m is making actually Palestinian panic. Will there be a future Israeli land invasion in Rafah, especially what we are witnessing in Rafah? now is very similar to what happened in Gaza before of its land invasion, what happened in Deir al-Balah and Middle Gaza before the land invasion in Middle uh, Gaza. Let me show you uh, something. This is a leaflet that was thrown by the Israeli drones on the city of Rafah over the past few days. Here, uh, actually the name of this, it looks like a newspaper. The name here is at Al-Waqi' which translates into reality. An alert in this a newspaper you will only read the truth and here we have the headlines are at uh, Hamas destroyed you you have to get rid of Hamas Hamas killed your um, children and here in the when we open this there is other headlines like uh, the lies of Abu Ubaidah 
the allowance of more aid into Gaza Strip. So literally, it, it does look like an, an, a newspaper. And uh, this is actually very different from the other leaflets that were thrown on the Gaza Strip over the past months because mostly the Israeli uh, drones through leaflets of evacuation orders to some areas or in some cases the photos of the hostages. But this is the first time that they actually throw something like this. So uh, this is actually making people even uh, more asking themselves what will be happening next. In a landmark legal case in the United Kingdom, a new court ruling has revealed that Israel and its Western backers have been suppressing conversations on the true nature of the Israeli regime. Amina Taylor reports. It was vindication on all counts. In one of the most closely monitored employment tribunal cases of recent memory, Professor David Miller and his legal team successfully claimed unfair dismissal and discrimination based on his philosophical belief that Zionism is inherently racist, imperialist and colonial. In a high-profile case, Professor Miller was dismissed by Bristol University in October 2021 after a campaign of relentless harassment by pro-Zionist. So what it means is that, first of all, I was wrongfully dismissed by the university. They didn't properly investigate uh, the complaints against me and they didn't properly evaluate what they should do with the results of that investigation. Second of all, the court determined that my anti-Zionist views are protected under law and it's illegal to discriminate against uh, someone who has anti-Zionist views. And they determined that the university had, contrary to what they said, actually dismissed me because of my anti-Zionist views. So that was the key uh, finding. And of course, that's a protection going forward for every person in the UK in employment who is attacked by their employer or by the Zionist movement, that they cannot be sacked for having anti-Zionist views. Hello, I'm Chris Former parliamentarian Chris Williamson, himself a victim of pro-Zionist hounding, responded to the verdict. Well, I'm absolutely delighted for David personally, but this is a landmark case and will huge, cause huge uh, ramifications, I think, for other people who have been uh, targeted by the Zionist lobby. And many people have been threatened with their employment. Others have, have lost employment as a result of their support for the Palestinian people. And so now we've got it established in law that opposition to Zionism is a protected characteristic under the uh, Equalities Act. A statement from the lawyers representing Professor Miller in this case reads, in part... This is a landmark case and marks a pivotal moment in the history of our country for those who believe in upholding the rights of Palestinians. The timing of this judgment will be welcomed by many who at present are facing persecution at their workplaces for speaking out against the Israeli crime. In the face of the unrelenting genocide taking place in Gaza, pro-Palestinian voices are under increased pressure to remain silent. Professor Miller's victory could make workplaces safer for Palestinian advocates. The position we were in was I made what, what are fairly unexceptional anti-Zionist points in my public comments. Now, to Zionist seers, these are unconscionable, outrageous things to say. Zionism is racism, Zionism is colonial, Zionism will always be racist. And the, the, the Zionists don't like that. And so they want to show that that is somehow anti-Semitism or some kind of slur uh, on Jewish people. And of course, it's not, but that's what they wanted to show. But what the court has determined is that those unexceptional anti-Zionist statements are, in fact, unexceptional anti-Zionist statements, and that everybody can make those kinds of statements without fear. 
Professor Miller's staunch pro-Palestinian views, including his work here on Palestine Declassified, made him a target for the pro-Zionist mob. Now, perhaps his victory at tribunal level will serve as an inspiration for those hoping to raise their voices for Palestine. Professor Miller's legal team will now be seeking the maximum compensation on offer for the losses and hurt caused by the discrimination suffered. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. And you've been listening again to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. We're in the middle of our fund drive, so please call and make a donation. Call 818-985-5735. And for a donation of $250, you can get a best of jump drive with historical interviews, sound bites, and events from Martin Luther King to Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez to the Occupy Movement and thousands in between. Grab this information for yourself and your kids before mainstream media rewrites history again and vanishes these gems into the memory hole. Call us at 818-985-5735 or go online to kpfk.org and donate to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News would like to thank our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the tireless contributors like Don DeBar, Paulina Vasiliev, and especially our producer, Siri Rideau. You can listen to us on the KPFK Rebel Alliance News podcast on SoundCloud and Audacity. Coming up next is Feminist Magazine. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m., and I'll be back with you next Wednesday at 6 p.m., and I hope you will join us again. For KPFK, I'm West Siegmiller. My name is uh, Leon. I 